Hi, this is Annie. And this is Bridget. And you're listening to Stuff Mom Never Told You. And this is an update episode. We have an update. An update, an update. Yay. Uh, If you remember the episode that Emily and I did a while back on Centoya Brown, there's actually been new movement in that case. Yes. Um, If you're unfamiliar, Centoya Brown is a young woman serving a life sentence in Tennessee for killing a man who picked her up for sex when she was 16. She's one of at least 100 people in Tennessee who were sentenced to life in prison as teenagers and one of countless women who has survived violence only to end up incarcerated. So this week, Brown, who is now 30, had a clemency hearing to persuade members of the Tennessee Parole Board to reduce her life sentence that she was handed as a teenager. A six-member panel was basically divided. Two recommended her sentence be commuted. Two said she should be up for parole in 2029. And two denied her request for clemency. According to CVS, a spokesman for Governor Bill Haslam said he and his legal counsel will thoroughly review Brown's application and the Board of Parole's recommendation before making a decision. If her clemency request is denied, Brown won't be eligible for parole until nearly 40 years from now, when she's 69. Dang. And for a crime that you were convicted of when you were 16, that is a long time. Yeah. So let's hear more about her story and what's going on with it and what folks can do. And today, I want to give a trigger warning right off the bat because today's episode deals with issues of violence against women and rape and violence against children. So if that's something that is tough for you to listen to, just know that's what we're getting into today. Today, we're talking about the reemergence of the heartbreaking and tragic story of Centoya Brown. Centoya is someone, maybe you've heard her story if you've seen celebrities like Rihanna and Kim Kardashian West and LeBron James and Snoop Dogg tweet about her, post about her on social media. Um, basically, her story is reemerging right now in our national narrative about violence and sexual crimes against women and young people and how we deal with those crimes. Yeah, this case has really reemerged as one of those tragic forms of injustice that slipped through the cracks when our laws were not what they should be. And for those who don't know the details of her case, let's start right there. So back in 2004, Centoya was a 16-year-old runaway who, after getting mixed up in a relationship with a man named Cutthroat, friendly-sounding dude, who ended up Uh, essentially pimping her out for sex as a 16-year-old girl, sort of mixed up in all of this. She was hired for sex by a 43-year-old real estate agent named Johnny Mitchell Allen. And he picked her up at a Sonic and took her back to his house, where things got even more scary, quite frankly. Right. So something to know about her situation is that Even though in these typical situations for her, she was taking men back to a hotel where she was living out of with this guy Cutthroat. But when she met John Allen, he actually suggested they go back to his place because there was no one there and they could be alone. So it does seem right off the bat, this seems to be a situation that was a little bit scarier than the already scary situation she was in. So they go back to his house. Once there, he starts showing her his collection of guns telling her that he was formerly a sharpshooter in the army, that he has a gun collection, that he's a really big deal. Um, and she starts to feel 
really, really scared. Well, I just want you to put yourself in her shoes for a second. You're 16 years old. You've run away from home. You're shacked up for whatever reason, probably in a desperate situation with a guy named Cutthroat who's selling your body. And now this man brings you to his home, which is not the plan. And you don't feel like you have any power to say no. And now he's showing you around his gun collection. I mean, I would be terrified. It's terrifying. And on top of that, she had been sort of coerced into using a lot of drugs by this guy Cutthroat. And so it's difficult for me to say that she was making rational choices, considering she was in such a scary situation and she was so young. So basically, what ended up happening was they were in bed together. At some point, she apparently was trying to resist whatever he was doing with her. They were laying in bed and he rolled over onto his side And she thinks to herself, I don't know if he's getting a gun. I don't know what's about to happen. And Cutthroat had given her a gun uh, to take with her. And so she shot him. Yeah, she shot and killed him. And she said in her defense, she really thought that she was in imminent danger. She thought he was reaching for a gun or that he was about to rape her. She didn't know what else to do. So she shot and killed him. Uh, And the prosecution claimed that she killed Alan as a part of a robbery because what she ended up doing was stealing his wallet and a few firearms on her way out the door. But her advocates actually point out that, listen, if you are shacked up with this guy Cutthroat, who she says beats her, rapes her, makes her have sex against her will with his friends, you know, if you're shacked up with someone like that who forces you to go out and do this kind of thing with men for money and you come back empty-handed, that you could really be putting yourself at risk. And so some of her advocates say, no, it wasn't actually a robbery as a 16-year-old you know, vulnerable young person, she felt she had to take his money and his guns and his valuables to give something to this guy Cutthroat so that she wouldn't get beat or killed or worse. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it didn't help her case, clearly, because despite her age, she was deemed a child prostitute charged as an adult, and she won't be eligible for parole until sometime after her 69th birthday. It's not a life sentence, but when you go in at 16... It's essentially a life sentence. Yeah. Here's her story in her own words from the hearing that would lead to her being tried as an adult. He didn't want to go to the hotel. He said that he wanted to go to his house because there was no one there. At the time, he was just finished telling me about his accomplishments and saying how that he used to be in the Army and that he was a sharpshooter in the Army. And then he had told me how a lot of women want him for his money and that he wanted someone to make love with him with desire. Did you see any guns in the house? Yes, I seen two shotguns downstairs, and he showed me a chrome gun with a black handle. Where were you when he showed you that? I was sitting at the table eating my food. You tend to be a nervous person. Yeah. Was there anything that made you especially nervous that night? Um, just how he was acting, just how he talked. It's like the way he talked, how he was just so important and stuff. And then me, I look at myself, who am I? Who am I to him? It's like, then he talks about the guns and stuff. If he does something to me, I'm sitting here thinking, what can I do? I'm in his house. Ain't nobody going to know where I'm at. My mom and them, they don't know where I'm at. Something that really sticks out at me at that testimony is that she sounds like a kid. She sounds like a child. She is a kid. Yeah, she. I don't know how someone could listen to that testimony and think, this is the testimony of someone who is making choices as an adult, making 
reasonable choices for themselves as an adult. Who should be held accountable for her choices. Like, she was choosing prostitution. Like, any 16-year-old can be a child prostitute. The whole concept is backwards. And to not consider the coercive factors in her life at that time and to choose to try her as an adult just seems like such an obvious injustice. I don't know how someone could look at a 16-year-old runaway who is living with a grown man who is raping her, making her have sex with his friends against her will, forcing her to do drugs, someone who had a very traumatic life from a very early age. I don't know how we can expect some, really any teenager whose brain is not fully developed to be making adult choices, but especially one who is as vulnerable as she was. Yeah, I mean, I get it. Like, teenagers writ large should be held responsible for their actions. I get that, but this does not seem like a teenager who's acting with free will. And that, it just pains me that that wasn't taken into consideration, that someone could listen to that kind of testimony and say, yep, let's try her as an adult. Well, that's especially troubling when you look at her childhood. So she's a runaway. She'd been crashing with friends in Nashville for about a year. Toward the middle or the end of July of 2004 is when she met her 24-year-old I mean, I don't even want to call him boyfriend. Yeah, it's not an appropriate term. Yeah, that's not an appropriate term. But this man, cutthroat, nice guy, nice sounding dude. They started living together, staying at different motels and snorting cocaine every day. He abused her physically and sexually. She said that once he even choked her until she passed out, and other times he even pulled a gun on her. She said, quote, he would explain to me that some people were born whores and that I was one and I was a slut and nobody'd want me but him. And the best thing I could do was just learn to be a good whore, according to her testimony. He forced her into prostitution so they would have money to live off of. So he's basically capitalizing on her body. And during Centoya's trial, the forensic psychiatrist, Richard Adler, who was called to testify, also said that some of Brown's erratic behavior on her own, her own behavior, could be explained by her birth mother's admitted abuse of alcohol while she was pregnant with Brown. So they're trying to basically piece together, okay, why did this kid run away in the first place? And what's going on here to try to explain some of the rationale or some of the motive behind how she ended up in this situation to further show that this is a very desperate young person who's in a very desperate situation. They diagnosed Brown as suffering from alcohol-related neurodevelopmental disorder, a type of fetal alcohol syndrome that he characterized as, quote, severe mental disease and defect. And this is predating forced prostitution. So if you want to talk about trauma, this is a young person who was born into a lot of trauma, who lived with a lot of trauma, and by the age of 16 is living with a pimp named Cutthroat who beats her and chokes her and pulls guns on her and forces her to prostitute her body because apparently he's convincing her she's a, quote, born whore. And yet this is someone who was, in the eyes of our criminal justice system, supposedly making choices as an adult. The same way that a grown woman who is not in an incredibly vulnerable situation as a youth would be making choices. Our criminal justice system said this is someone who understood her actions and knew what she was doing and making choices. And they're holding her accountable as if she were an adult who was not in an incredibly vulnerable situation. Right. For 50 years of her life now. Right. That's like that's what our justice system has deemed appropriate. And so it's no wonder that in this moment that we find ourselves in, in which injustice and 
a lack of accountability in our justice system for women and girls who are vulnerable and not fully empowered as individuals or adults or as full human beings, there's a reckoning that I think is happening right now. I think that's part of the reason why Kim Kardashian West and all these celebrities are drawing attention to Centoya's case in this moment of Me Too. Is it the same thing? No. Is it the same issue? Not entirely. But this idea that the way our world works fundamentally does not treat women and girls fairly is sort of that common thread that that strings these two things together. And I would hope that a cultural moment like Me Too does also have room for stories like hers. Me Too has been instrumental in showing the way that starlets and actresses and models and Folks like that have been preyed upon by powerful men. But this movement, in my mind, can only go so far if it doesn't also take into account people who aren't A-list starlets, people who aren't famous models. If it leaves out youth who have been trafficked, if it leaves out domestic workers, if it leaves out low-income women, if it doesn't tell all of those stories and does not try to make this moment about justice for all those different kinds of people— For me, it would fall short. And so I'm hoping that this is really a moment for all different kinds of people who have been preyed upon, whether they're Uma Thurman or whether they're a 16-year-old runaway. I think this moment needs to be about reassessing how, as a culture, we have talked about and dealt with all of those situations. Exactly. It's a moment of reckoning, I think, for us to really hold our justice system up against our values as a country and see where we're falling short and make some changes. Exactly. After a quick break, we'll talk more about what Centoya's story has to say about our criminal justice system. And we're back. And let's break down one of the reasons why this case is really so troubling. So if you go back to the 2004 testimony, they talk about Centoya like she is a quote-unquote prostitute, a prostitute who killed a John and As we know now, there's really no such thing as a child prostitute. Like, that doesn't exist. If you are a child, if you're not an adult, and you are being made to have sex with adults, you are being trafficked. And in 2004, our criminal justice system did not allow for that nuance to be understood. Young people who got caught up in that system were treated as criminals despite the fact that they would more accurately be described as victims. Yes, I think it it reminds me of statutory rape laws too, right? Those laws are on the books for a reason because we acknowledge that consent is not possible when you are a child who's having sex with an adult. And that's even without the money factor. So if you're thinking about Centoria's situation in particular, do you really think that she's entering into the marketplace of capitalism, selling her body for profit? No, she's not even profiting off of it, right? Like that's not going back to her And even if that money was going into her pocket, she is not an adult who's entering that system or entering that marketplace freely, right? She's not making a free choice in this situation. She's being coerced. She's being abused. She's being raped in that process and trafficked. Exactly. Here's how Centoya described her situation in a 2011 PBS documentary called Me Facing Life. He said that I was slipping and then I was starting to become a slouch. That I needed to get out and get on my grind and get some money. What's this guy cut? What's his real name? Gary Ann McLean. So how long were you living with him? For like three weeks. And then what? So what was he like? Different hotels. 
remember one time, the first time he did something to me is when he choked me and I passed out. Because he said I thought he was a joke. Mm-hmm. What else did he do to you? He talked real bad to me. He jacked me up. He pulled me by my hair and dragged me and stuff. He put guns up the do you ever have sex with the guys? When I cut the gun up to me, I did. Did he, did, did he have sex with you too? Yeah, he had sex with me. Sometimes I don't want to have sex with him. He's still me. I'll be crying and everything. So how, how come you stayed with him? You're not listening. I made him money. He wasn't gonna let me go nowhere. He's told me he'd kill me. He knows where my mom lives. And I know the dude choked me so I almost passed out. He's not afraid. I don't know if you could hear everything she was saying in there, but she said that he was dragging her by her hair, that he was having sex with her against her will, that he was putting a gun to her head, forcing her to have sex with his friends. I mean, the the line of questioning here even infuriates me because the, the follow-up to those questions and answers— Why would you stay? Why did you choose to stay with him as though free will was even on the table? And that's what I find so powerful about her response to that question is, you're, you're not, not listening. listening. He used me for money. And so anyone who would think that this 16-year-old runaway is making a choice to get involved in the sex-for-money trade— willingly, they're not listening. The same way he wasn't listening, they're not listening. And I think even for someone so young, to me, I was like, yeah, he's not listening. He doesn't understand. He thinks this is like her shacking up with some guy and making like having a good time or something. No, he's not listening to how dire and how scary and really how powerless she was in this situation. Exactly. And so she tries to respond to make him listen by saying, dude, he was going to kill me. He made it very clear to me when he choked me out that he was not afraid to kill me, that he knew where my mother lived. This is the kind of psychological torture that sociopaths who kidnap children do as well. Like, she is a child. She was being manipulated, coerced, and was living in fear and was being used for money that didn't go back to her. I just cannot believe that any part of our justice system, and especially as recently as 2004, would think she's entering this as a child prostitute with free will, and we should charge her as an adult. It's infuriating. Exactly. And unfortunately, her situation isn't even as rare as we might like to think. According to the Bureau of Justice Statistics, each year more than 1,000 children are arrested for, quote, prostitution in the U.S., Yeah, and those advocates are saying that in many of those cases, it's the children who are the victims, not the perpetrators of crime. And so there are these new safe harbor laws that protect trafficked minors from criminal charges that really should have been part of what could have saved Centoya, but didn't. When you look at some of the crimes that these young people who have already gone through so much are getting impunity for, some of them are things like truancy and underage drinking, Crimes that seem so wildly out of step with the lives that they're living. Are you going to be someone who is a runaway at 14, 15, 16, getting involved in being sex trafficked, becoming a victim in that way, and then you're afraid to talk to law enforcement because you don't want to get busted for underage drinking? Like, what, like, what is that? Right. It just seems like a false equivalency. And that's why those safe harbor laws are on the books now, to make it safe for victims of sex trafficking in our country, which, by the way, there are way more than we like to think there are, to come forward and get the help that they need. 
What's interesting is that we didn't even really talk about victims of sex trafficking coming from the United States before around 2005. Like, we had not even comprehended that people in the United States could be victims of sex trafficking until then, which seems wild to me. Well, it just goes to show you how so often crimes against women and girls are not considered public information or in the public domain. Kind of like how domestic violence was a private matter until relatively historically recently. Exactly. And now we even have a language to sort of describe this system that gets young people involved in trafficking and sex abuse and sex crimes and leads them to prison. Advocates are calling it the sexual abuse to prison pipeline. And this really is an idea that takes into account that vulnerable young people who are being trafficked and sexually abused and going through all of these traumas, oftentimes they're ending up in the criminal justice system. Exactly. And here's what Yasmin Vafa, the executive director of Rights for Girls, has to say about the sexual abuse to prison pipeline. So what we actually found in the report was that in a number of states that had available data looking at girls in the system, the overwhelming majority of girls behind bars had suffered instances of sexual and physical violence. In some states, like South Carolina, it was 81% of girls. In places like Oregon, it was upwards of 93%. So when we looked at those high rates of trauma together with the most common offenses that girls were being arrested for, it really made clear that it was that victimization that was driving the abuse. So sometimes that looks like a young girl who's running away from an abusive home or foster care situation who is then arrested for the offense of running away. And sometimes that looks like a girl who is engaging in substance abuse to cope with the years of trauma. And in the most extreme cases, it looks like what happened to Brisha Meadows, what happened to Centoya Brown, in the case that they were actually forced to take more extreme measures to protect themselves as a result of society essentially failing them. And I think that it's not a coincidence that the whole issue with Centoya Brown has kind of made a resurgence during the wake of these Me Too disclosures, because I think it shows what Me Too looks like for some of our most vulnerable girls. I almost feel like one of the questions that I, one of the most offensive questions that I come away from that quote with, frankly, is, I mean, here's the thing. I think she's spot on. And yet, I think most people in prison who are the perpetrators of violent crimes are victims themselves in some way. So we know that that doesn't provide a pass, right? That doesn't mean that murdering somebody, even if it is in self-defense, gets you off the hook if you've been traumatized in your past. So I just wonder, how do we reconcile the obvious, incredibly high rates of sexual abuse that lead many of these women and girls into the justice system to begin with, with the very real need for there need to be crimes that yield punishments, you know? That's a great question, and I think you can actually see an answer to that in Centoya's defense. Basically, they aren't saying that, that she should be let out, you know, without serving any time. What they're advocating for is actually that as a young person who committed a violent crime as a minor, she should not be sentenced to life in prison without a chance to get parole. Yeah. And so basically her team is arguing that what would make more sense is that it, her case could be reviewed in 15 to 20 years, not 50 years, 50 years, right, which, which is the is situation crazy. now. And I mean, at, at the outset, she should have been tried as a child. Exactly. I completely agree. I don't understand how someone could hear her testimony and not think this is a child. So I don't think that she should have been charged as an adult in the first place, despite the violent nature of her crime. 
Exactly. And I think that's why today you see a lot more advocates bringing scrutiny to this idea that you should charge any kind of a young person like Centoria as an adult. In fact, Brown's life sentence and the practice of sentencing young people to a lifetime behind bars, even for the most heinous of crimes, has drawn increased pushback and flack not only in Tennessee, but really nationwide, as a wave of scientific research has shown, adolescents lag behind adults in the development of the parts of their brain that regulate aggression, abstract thinking, long-term planning. And really, even if there wasn't a history of sexual abuse and trauma, even if there wasn't all of the components of fear and coercion and desperation that weighed in on Centoya's case, that a teenager shouldn't be charged as an adult that a teenager is not in the same position of power and free will that an adult who's perpetrating a violent crime. Plain and simple. Exactly. And furthermore, in 2012, the Supreme Court ruled that mandatory life without parole sentences for juveniles violate the Eighth Amendment prohibiting against cruel and unusual punishment. So basically, this reform won't actually help Brown's case much at all because in the state where she committed her crime, Tennessee, she actually does get a, a parole review period after 51 years. But advocates say that that's essentially a de facto life sentence. And so even though it's now unconstitutional for a juvenile to face life without parole for a crime committed when they were under the age of 18, that doesn't actually help her because she actually does get a parole review. It just is a really, really long time away. Oh, my God. 51 years before a single parole review? Really? I mean, how is that that much different than a life sentence? Truly? I mean, advocates actually say it, it's basically a life sentence. Right. And in Tennessee, there are already 183 people serving actual life sentences for crimes they committed when they were teens. And that already includes a mandatory review after 51 years, just like Centoya's. So advocates there call it a virtual life sentence because that's really what even this teenager is, and 183 teenagers are facing in the state of Tennessee. So it sounds like Brown's team, like you mentioned earlier, Centoya's team of attorneys is hoping to get, you know, not her off the books, not her crime to be without any form of punishment, but to push for a parole review in 15 to 20 years instead of waiting until she's basically 69 years old. And that would have her being in prison until she's 31 or 36 rather than 69. And for a teenager who went in when she was 16, that is really something. I don't think that someone should spend their basically their entire life behind bars because of a choice they made when they were a vulnerable 16-year-old. Yeah, and a choice in air quotes. Here. Yeah, not a cho- I mean, It's a yeah. coercive situation all around. So, I don't know. I think there's this really troubling line of questioning that came out of some of the research we were doing, which it boils down to this concept of crime and punishment or crime and rehabilitation. In other words, some people would argue, Bridget, that Centoya's life is better off in prison. Since she's been there, she's gotten her associate's degree, she's in a comparatively safe environment, which I think is pretty offensive in terms of that that line of questioning anyway, to say, oh, she's better off in prison than having her life to herself and having any free will for 30 to 51 years. What What do you think about that? concept that came out of the research where there were journalists asking her defense attorneys, isn't it better off that she's in prison as opposed to being pimped out? 
As someone who has worked on criminal justice and juvenile justice reform issues, I think anybody who thinks that doesn't know anything about what it's like for a young person to be involved in the criminal justice system in this way. Girls who are in detention, it's not a safe situation. It's not a dignified situation. It's not a situation that you would think, oh, they are in a safe space. A lot of times they're being abused within the system. It's not a place that I would describe as safe. And so even though she certainly wasn't living a safe life out on the streets with cutthroat, I would never say that she's better off behind bars, even if she's made life developments there. Yeah, and it just forces us to consider as a country how we think about prison, right? The United States is notorious for locking up more of our citizens than countries almost anywhere else, which we mentioned on the uh, episode around pregnant in prison. And we have to consider that we're paying $27,000 per year per inmate in Tennessee. That's our taxpayer dollars. So what's the return on that investment? First of all, we're punishing this child who is trafficked, not a child prostitute, as an adult, throwing her behind bars for 51 years before she has the chance to even prove herself rehabilitated. And that's supposed to be a good use of our justice system to to rehabilitate criminal activity. I I just, it boggles my mind a little bit. And at the same time, I know that the victims advocates, the folks who are advocating on behalf of that John, really, who was, you know, was shot and killed in this crime, probably feel a little differently about it. Absolutely, they completely do. So two victims advocates groups have been very clear that they don't agree that Brown's case needs to be reassessed or that she should get any kind of leniency for her age when she committed her crime. The National Organization of Victims of Juvenile Murder has criticized advocates for eliminating life sentences for juvenile offenders as, quote, lavishing all their resources on convicted murderers. They go on to say, we are not denying the premise that teenage perpetrators are impacted by toxic stress and events in their life, but we believe juveniles have to be held accountable for their actions. A Nashville-based victims' rights group said the same thing. The group is called You Have the Power, and their executive director said, the results are the same whether the person committing the crime is 16 or 60. And I got to say, I I understand where they're coming from in a kind of way because nobody wants to be the victim of a violent crime, but I don't agree that it's the same thing whether the perpetrator was a full-grown adult or a child. Yeah. I don't know. It belies this weird discomfort around how our society considers youth responsible or not responsible for their actions. So, you know, teenager criminals should be held responsible for their actions. But if we believe that prison is a form of rehabilitation and we believe that children need different kinds of rehabilitation and maybe that they have more life afterwards, more life after crime to actually, you know, redeem themselves to join society as a fully rehabilitated human being with their full rights reinstated, then we have to treat them differently. We have to consider the special circumstances that meet minors. And we know that this is happening in other crimes. We know that other criminals who are minors are treated differently. Well, that's exactly what I was going to say. I think my question is always, who gets treated like a kid and who doesn't? Who, If we're talking about people who are the same age, what kind of people are criminalized as adults, what kind of person does the justice system say, you understood, you're old enough to know what you did was wrong and we're going to treat you like an adult? And who gets called just a kid or, you know... A good guy gone wrong. Wait, let me guess. White dudes. Exactly. It is white guys. Look at cases like Brock Turner 
who was actually convicted of three counts of felony sexual assault and served just 92 days in jail and is now, actually this week, trying to appeal his conviction. He got a slap on the wrist and all of his advocates said, he's just a kid, he's just a student, he made a bad choice. His parents talked about him like he was just a child and he got a very lenient sentence. And you, you might recall, or maybe you don't, the details of his crime. He was caught raping an unconscious young woman behind a dumpster on campus, right? And two men actually came to the rescue in this, in this case and stopped him and held him until he was arrested. But this guy has the hubris and the entitlement and the audacity to push back on 92 days. Yeah. Come on. It's really mind-boggling. And look at cases like Tamir Rice, who was a 12-year-old with a BB gun who was shot and killed. And people saw him and thought, that's a grown man. And he was a kid. He was a black kid. Yes. And I think when we think about who we extend the ability to be just kids and who we sentence as adults, we need to be thinking about... Who gets left out of that? And yeah. oftentimes, it's, it's youth of color. Yes, absolutely. The Georgetown Law Center on Poverty and Equality just put out a study earlier this year, Girlhood Interrupted the Erasure of Black Girls' Childhood. And what they found is that black boys as early as 10 years old are more likely than white boys to be misperceived as older, to be viewed as guilty of suspected crimes, and to face police violence if accused of a crime. When you lay over gender on top of race here, the study found that black girls as early as the age of five are viewed as less innocent than their white counterparts. Basically belying this intersection of unconscious bias, race, and gender that leaves girls like Centoya more likely to be seen as somehow responsible for their crime or somehow guilty and less innocent just for being who she is. Absolutely. And it's really troubling and heartbreaking and sad. And I, I can't help but see the way that these things have played out in her sentencing and in her case. We're going to talk a little bit more about where the case is at now and what can be done about it after this quick break. And we're back. We were just talking about the heartbreaking story of Satoya Brown. And here's where Satoya is now. She's still behind bars, but apparently she is basically a model inmate. While in prison, she earned her associate's degree from Lipscomb University, Uh, which is an in-jail program. She got that degree in 2016. She's also working toward her master's degree. All of the various folks that have been interviewed in her case and for this documentary on PBS all agree she's a model inmate who works as a mentor for other young people in the criminal justice system. And she talks on and on about how her main concern is that she doesn't want other young women to be trafficked the way that she was. And to fall into the criminal justice system the way she has. Because all of the legal updates that have been made in terms of the the rules and regulations, the safe harbor laws that now acknowledge, even in the state of Tennessee, that children cannot be prostitutes, don't apply to her. So while the laws on the books have improved, that hasn't helped her case at all. And she seems not only aware of that, but accepting of that. She's accepting of that and advocating for other people, mentoring other women in prison and helping make positive change for those who come behind her. And I just think that that speaks volumes of her character. It speaks volumes of what Centoya Brown is capable of. And it 
reminds me that we all need to come to her defense. We all need to play a role in making her life a little easier. So what can folks do? Well, you can be like Kim Kardashian West, and you can tweet about it for starters. And if you're a Kim Kardashian West type and you have access to a high-powered celebrity attorney, which Kim Kardashian West does, you can get her involved. Kim Kardashian West actually was in the news this week for getting her celebrity attorney involved in this case. Awesome. Awesome. So use that hashtag FreeCentoyaBrown, and her name is spelled C-Y-N-T-O-I-A Brown. Um, You can sign the MoveOn.org petition that has nearly half a million signatures already. But let's be practical here. You're listening to Stuff Mom Never Told You on your iPhone, in your car. If you want to make real change in Centoya Brown's life right now, I want you to pull over. I want you to write this down. I want you to get your notebook out, and I want you to get that notes app ready because you can actually directly communicate with and directly support Centoya Brown. We just signed up to do it ourselves. Bridget, how can folks spread a message of support, hope, love, and even put some dollar bills behind Centoya Brown herself. So you can write to her in prison. You can find her at Miss Centoya D. Brown, number 4105932 South C12-3881 Stewart's Lane, Nashville, Tennessee, zip code 37218. You can also sign up for a website called jpay.com, which helps you put money in the bank for Centoya Brown to access in prison. At jpay.com, just search for the state Tennessee and search for inmate number 410593. There you can set up a free account. You'll identify the right inmate. You can see her name is right there, and you can send her money directly. You can even sign up to make recurring payments. So listen, there's not much we can do unless you're an attorney who wants to head to Tennessee yourself or hire your celebrity attorney to do that too. Unless you can fight the laws on the books here and stay monitoring this case, there's not much we can do to make uh, a case like Centoya Brown's who slipped through the cracks better at this point. But what we can do is spread a message of hope, of support, of encouragement for this young woman who has come so very far already, but deserves so much more than the deck of cards she's been handed. I would also urge folks to watch the 2011 PBS documentary about her case called Me Facing Life. Honestly, watching that documentary in preparation for this episode really showed me what a mature young woman she's become, despite the fact that most of her life was either spent on the streets or behind bars. Centoya in this film describes a situation wherein she doesn't want to be pretty anymore. She cuts off her hair and shaves her eyebrows because being attractive gets you nothing but trouble. And looking at her life, I can understand how a young woman would come to that conclusion. So at the end of this documentary, you really find this young person trying to figure out who she is in the world, even as she's behind bars, and what it all means. Here's what she has to say about herself. That's part of the reason I cut my hair off and shave my eyebrows off. It's kind of like to prove to myself that I'm beautiful without all that, you know what I mean? And I'm worth more than that. And did you feel that? Yeah. Every now and then I feel stupid for cutting all my hair off and shaving my eyebrows, but basically, yeah. I think I've been, for the past two years, working on making a personality. I've never had one before. 
And if you want to reach out with your words of wisdom, with your show of support, now is the time when Centoya is deciding who she is and who she wants to become, right? We all have been in a vulnerable position in our lives at some point when we were facing the same question of who am I? Who am I not defined by my external qualities, not defined by my relationships or utility to other people, specifically abusive men in our lives? If you want to share your words of support, please take a moment today. Write to Centoya. Don't write to us. Take this opportunity to write to Centoya. And even if you can't donate to her account, which we also highly encourage you to do, share with her what her words have meant to you today. Because we can't go back in time and make this situation much better, but we can make her future a lot better at this critical point. And consider the fact that she really serves as a mentor for other young people who are involved in the criminal justice system. It's not too late for her to be an impactful force in the lives of others and to keep other people from getting tangled up in an unfair, tricky, dangerous system the way that she has been. And so... I encourage all of us to really lift her up and support her because I don't think what happened to her was fair. And I'm glad that people are talking about it. And we want to hear what you have to say. What do you think about Brown's story? What did you think about the idea of the sexual abuse to prison pipeline? Is this something you've heard of? What do you think it means when someone commits a crime as a youth and is dealt with as if they were an adult? We want to hear from you. Send us a tweet at MomStuffPodcast. Hit us up on Instagram at StuffMomNeverToldYou. And as always, we love getting your emails at MomStuff at HowStuffWorks.com. Mm-hmm.